Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and I'm here with my good friends, TK Coleman. Welcome to the show. Alabama is here. Hi, everybody. We've got the rest of our team here in the studio as well. Ryan Nicodemus is on vacation this week. He'll be back for episode 400. We have a very special episode prepared for you, so you can tune in next week. But this week, we are talking about hobby clutter, paper clutter, different forms of clutter. We'll be answering some questions in the Patreon live stream as well. We have some new information about that Patreon live stream. We're changing it up completely. You're going to be super excited about this change. Most people hate changes. They hate being changed. This is one of those changes you're really going to enjoy. We'll talk about that during the Right Here, Right Now segment. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement-free because, say it with me, y'all, advertisements suck. Yes, they do. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Mike. This is Mike from Tallahassee. Um, I was wondering if you have a hobby and you make a checklist of purchases that support your hobby, should you fulfill that checklist? Thanks. TK, tell me what you what your thoughts are on checklists. Mm. The first question that pops in my mind when I think about any checklist is, is it yours? I often tell my students, follow your dreams, but make sure they're your dreams that you're following. Because it's easy to orient your life around mimetic desire. You're chasing things, you're following to-do lists, you're obeying a bunch of rules, you're pursuing projects, and none of that stuff is coming from the heart. It's a bunch of stuff that you think you ought to do or that other people told you would be good for you to do. But you want to pursue things in life that you don't have to justify, right? Well, you know, if I were to say something like, hey man, I got a good friend, his birthday's coming up. I want to take him out for a cup of coffee. Uh, I want to buy him a book that I know that he really wants. Uh, is, is it okay if I do those things? Should I do it? I really love my wife and I got a, a bunch of things I want to do for her. I want to buy her a flower. I want to take her out to dinner. Should I do that? When you found something or someone that you love, you don't agonize over those checklists, over those checklists because you just organically express the love and affection that you have by doing what you want to do, right? And so find the hobbies that you don't need to justify. Pursue the things, pursue the people that make you just want to say yes to it from a place of, I love it. This is what I want to do. And this feels free. You know what I mean? I think we get really caught up in the shoulds of it, right? Yeah. He even said, should I get everything on my checklist, do everything on my checklist? And of course, there are no shoulds, but there are unlimited, infinite coulds. There yeah. are many things you could do. And I think about different hobbies that people have, and some ha hobbies, they require accoutrements, right? Yeah. If you are going to hike Mount Everest, you probably need more things than I need as a person who doesn't climb mountains, right? Now, is it possible to 
hike Everest uh, with just shorts on like uh, Wim Hof did? Yeah, I, I guess, right? But most people's experiences will be, what, enhanced by having the appropriate accessories. The question I often ask myself is, what would happen if you go without? Because if I go without, doesn't mean I should go without. What would happen if I go without? Maybe my experience will be enhanced. Maybe my creativity will be expanded in my hobby because I had creative limitations that were birthed out of the boundaries that I have. Maybe I don't have all the accessories that I thought I needed, but it turns out I didn't need those accessories at all. I thought I needed them because society told me I needed them, or I created a checklist of all the things on my dream list that I might want for this hobby. And who knows? The hobby might be something you just started, and now you're going to buy all of these different accessories to fulfill a hobby you may not be that interested in in the first place. And so I want to discuss with Mike the diminishing returns Mm. of owning too much. Mm. Because there is a sweet spot for any hobby that you have. If you are a runner, having shoes may enhance your running. Now, the barefoot runners will disagree with that, obviously, right? (laughs) And they even call into question, okay, what would happen if you went without? Well, yeah, I would still run. I would just do it barefoot. And maybe my life is better running barefoot. Someone else might say, nope, I injured myself doing that. I need minimalist shoes for that, okay, that, that, are, that are zero drop or the little five-finger shoes or whatever it might be. That's fine. Or maybe I just need a regular pair of Adidas or Nikes or Reeboks or Filos or whatever to help me run, Okay. What do I need beyond it? Well, of course, I need the correct windbreaker for this, and I need the performance shorts that are sweat wicking. And now all of a sudden, for something as simple as running, I have a list of a dozen things that I must have. Otherwise, I am not a runner. Well, no, you are a runner if you run. You are a writer if you write. It doesn't matter what accoutrements you have, what accessories you have. And your accessories, they can definitely enhance the experience. But there's also a point of diminishing returns. There's a point where those accessories actually get in the way. Yeah, I'm thinking about if you buy all of the running accessories and you're wearing them all over your body. In fact, Danny was just running a marathon this weekend. Danny, can you imagine if you were to adorn your whole body with more accessories. I need the watch that tracks everything perfectly. I need to sync that up with the app and everything else. It actually gets in the way of the thing that you want to do, which is run. And so is this getting in the way? If Hmm. so, I probably don't want to bring it on into my, even if it's on my checklist. So I'd look at that whole checklist if I were in Mike's shoes and I would say, hey, are any of these things going to get in the way? And then I would ask, What would happen if I went without this? Not forever, but what if I went without it for a month or three months? What's going to happen? And push yourself as far as the pushing feels free. Don't push yourself because Josh is telling you to push yourself. Don't push yourself because there's this sense of guilt that says, well, as a minimalist, I should try really, really hard to run without a a pair of gym shoes, right? A hobby is something that presumably you're going to do more than once, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like an experiment. Hey, I'm getting ready to go on my first camping trip ever. I have no clue what sorts of things to expect. Hey, friends, those of you who have gone camping, can you give me a checklist of the things that I might need and then I'll think about it, you know? 
it, this is something that I enjoy. I want to do more and more of. And so the checklist is only there to support the enjoyment. You make a checklist because there are things that are important to you and you don't want to forget them amidst the hustle and bustle of life. You don't want to get out there and be in the middle of running and go, oh no, I wanted to bring a bottle of water and I forgot it. The, the whole point is you check your list. Mm. The list represents things that you put down because they matter to you. They enhance the experience, right? And so what enhances your experience? What gives you joy? Eliminate as much as you can, but nothing less than what keeps that experience meaningful for you. Because if your checklist is stripping away the hobby of its meaning, then you're you're losing the point. You're, you're sacrificing the why for the how. Yeah, and I want to talk about some individual hobbies that might require more accessories as well. And I think that's important to acknowledge. But even in those scenarios, when you're first starting out, let's say you're going camping. My wife is an avid camper. She really enjoys yeah. camping. I don't. I grew up poor. I don't know why I'd want to recreate that now. I, I like having a roof over my head and, and I don't like sleeping <laughs> on the ground. And so I, but I, that's not a judgment on her. She really enjoys it. And I respect the fact. And in fact, I really appreciate the fact that she gets joy out of that. You don't like the nature aspect of it? Just like being I outside? Do. I like I like being outside and being in nature, but then I like going home to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like sleeping with the bears. I get it. I get but it. here's the thing. Let's say you're taking up a new hobby like camping. Yep. You don't want to go out and spend $2,000 on new camping accessories. You don't even know if you like this hobby yet, right? right. And so the question I ask myself, is there a free alternative? Yep. Okay, maybe there's somewhere I can actually get some of this stuff for free that I need. Yep. Or maybe I can borrow it from a friend, a family member, or Craigslist. Maybe I can get it used. Is that possible, right? And maybe I can even rent it for a period of time. We've done that with different equipment for filming things that we do. Whenever we need to film a new movie, we don't go out and buy all the cameras. You rent that for a few days when you need it. Now, if you need to buy a camera, because in the studio, we use cameras every week. It made more sense for us to buy the cameras here once we knew that we would be using them regularly. But you don't just go out and say, you know what, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. Let's spend $30,000 on equipment. That's what people do. They think that That's the true. equipment is going to translate into a high-quality conversation. But sometimes that will get in the way. I'll use one more example for you. Uh, writing. I write, and I require accessories for writing. In fact, I'm holding a pen in my hand right now, and I have a piece of paper here in front of me. And so that is what I need to write. Now, usually I write on my computer. Any computer will generally do just fine. Any software program will do just fine for me. Usually free software programs like Google Docs or Apple Notes, that works great for me. However, our good friend, Professor Sean, he teaches my How to Write Better class with me. He really enjoys the accoutrements of yeah. writing, whether it's the electronic accoutrements of like a tablet that works really well for him. I don't like tablets at all. So a tablet for me would get in the way. Hmm. And recently he's gotten into using really high-end pens and notebooks. He has a really nice fountain pen that costs more than all of my pens combined. And I don't think he's wrong for that. But what works for me may not work for we. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is that if I were to go mimic exactly what Sean does, it would actually get in the, get in the way of my yeah. writing process. And yeah. I think that's important. Will these accessories get in the way of your hobby? If so, they're clutter. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a nice little distinction arising out of this. And that is 
will I enjoy this? And then if the answer to that is yes, how will I enjoy this? Because you and I can both enjoy the same thing, but perhaps we enjoy it in different ways, right? Maybe we both like to go see shows, but I like to see movies and you like to see live theater. Maybe I like to snack and eat popcorn when I'm watching a movie. Maybe you don't enjoy eating anything at all because that gets in the way of the aesthetics of the experience while you watch the story unfold. And so I I think what's coming out of this is strive to be as minimalist as you possibly can early on in the process as you get to know that hobby and as you get to know yourself in relation to that hobby. Mm -hmm. And then once you got that figured out, you know what to invest and you won't be overcommitting. That's yeah. so important. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, This makes me think of when I first discovered people that would do very elaborate letter writing. And YouTube is great for this to introduce you to a wide variety of hobbies. But I would see these people that would pull out beautiful different shades of paper, all of these little um, tapes and stickers and all kinds of stuff. And it was like a collage where they would letter write and they would film themselves doing this. And I went, oh, that's gorgeous. I want to do that. And I started buying all the things. And I was like, well, I need some stickers to put in there. And I get in front of the paper and go, I don't know what to write. I think I just really enjoyed watching other people do Mm. this. And that's really okay, is finding out that exploration of do I just enjoy this existing? Do I enjoy interacting with this and watching it? Or is this something that I feel compelled to do? And if so, what's the bare minimum I need to start to see if you like it to even go into it? And, so good. And, and of course, there will be ebbs and flows throughout all of this. I, I've seen Jordan No More over there, and he is a minimalist filmmaker. And you can give him next to nothing. You give him a tin can, he'll make a movie out of it somehow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. But also, he is Genius right obsessed with a lot of the accoutrements that wouldn't, they don't mean anything to me. He has a really nice camera that he just bought recently. And when I say there are ebbs and flows, just like minimalism, when you let go of the excess in your closet, what happens? Eventually, it becomes full of new things. And so it's a process of acquiring, letting go, acquiring, letting go. If you've got all the things for camping over a period of time, and then you realize like, not all of these are really serving me the way I thought they were, or they did serve me, but I'm doing this differently now. Mm-hmm. A willingness to let go is so important. Mike, I want to give you something Uh, In fact, anyone who's listened to this, they can download it for free. We have these minimalist wallpapers you can download for free. And one of them is the five questions to ask before buying. And I think that's especially important for for a hobby because hobbies we get really excited about and we throw all discretion out the window and say, "I, I need all the accessories and I need them right now. One click, it'll be on my doorstep by tomorrow. And great, my life will be fulfilled. I'll have all the camping gear so much so that I might not ever even go camping, right? I fulfilled my desire by just buying the things. And then, of course, it doesn't actually fulfill your desire. They tend to get in the way. So five questions to ask before buying. Here are the five questions. Can I afford to part with this money? And here's a hint. If you have to charge it to a credit card, you cannot afford it. Hmm. Can I pay the actual cost? Remember, the true cost of a thing goes far beyond the price tag. All those things you buy, you have to store them, you have to water them, you have to clean them, you have to take care of them, you have to wash them, you have to worry about them. Those are additional costs that go beyond the price tag. Can you pay that actual cost? Number three, will it add value to my life? It must serve a purpose or amplify your joy in some way. Otherwise, it doesn't add value. In fact, it might get in the way of your hobby. That'd be the worst thing. You buy something to improve your hobby, and it actually gets in the way of that hobby. 
Number four, what are the alternatives? In other words, is this the best use of this money? If not, maybe I can rent it. Maybe I can borrow it for a period of time. Maybe I can spend that money elsewhere yeah. if this isn't the best use of that money. Hmm. And then finally, number five, can I get by without it for a while? If so, wait. You can always use our 30-30 rule. Yep. If something costs more than $30, wait at least 30 hours to buy it. Why is that? Because it allows some friction in the process. We make it a little more difficult to buy that thing to not act on impulse because when we don't act on impulse, we're buying it intentionally. So you can download that right now over theminimalists.com. Just click on the resources page there. You can find a bunch of free resources from The Minimalists, including seven different wallpapers to declutter your smartphone or your computer screen. Our next question is from Ashton. Hi, my name is Ashton and I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. My question is, how do you let go of things when you really want to have less and free up space, not just in your home, but in your mind? But the fear of having to use the money to possibly buy the item again makes it feel almost impossible to let go. Hmm. Ashton, if you say it's impossible, you are right. <laughs> Expound. Well, I think about this. Anytime I'm, I, I'm talking to my daughter, who's 10 years old now, I can't do this. It's the Henry Ford line, right? Whether you, you, you say, what, what's, what's the exact quote? Sean, do you know this one? Whether you say you can do it or you can't do it, you're correct, yep. right? And, and so I think ultimately, Ashton, if you're telling yourself that it is impossible to do something, to let go, whatever it might be, yes, it's a disempowering story. It feels impossible. Why does it feel impossible? Mm. Because of the story I'm telling myself that it is impossible. What's the obverse of that? It is possible. I simply don't know how yet. Shout out to my mom. She never allowed me and my brothers to speak like that growing up. Like she would like meticulously, legalistically correct us whenever we use the word can't. Not because she didn't believe that can't apply to certain scenarios, but she always made us earn our can'ts. So if I were ever to say something like I can't speak Spanish, she would say, no, you haven't applied yourself. You haven't taken the time to learn. You haven't figured out how to solve that problem. And, and she would make us repeat the right way. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't applied it myself to it yet. And sometimes you can legitimately say, I can't do X, but you want to earn the right to say that you can't do something. You don't ever want to adopt that as a default. Another thing I'd say to Ashton here is that I, I would resist the temptation to overly moralize our relationship to things. We don't just give things away that are holding us back because it's moral, but because it's magical. Meaning that when you let go of something that is beneath you, against you, unworthy of you, getting in the way of the true you, then you create the space for a unique quality of magic to begin to unfold from your life. If I'm in a toxic relationship, if I'm at a soul-sucking job and I can see that, and then I say, well, I know this is killing me now, but I'm afraid that if I leave, I might want that person back. I might want that job back. I might want that paycheck back. Well, that's always a possibility, right? When you say no to the things that aren't serving you, there's always that voice of fear that says, but yeah, if I move on from what I hate, I might fail at pursuing what I love. And you just got to have enough faith to not only bet on yourself and say, 
I would rather orient my life around pursuing what I love, even at the risk of failure, than living with the guaranteed result of a life that I hate. You not only got to have that, but you also got to trust what happens in the space that you create when you start saying no to things that are self-stultifying. You make better decisions when you exist in that space. So all you need to know right now is not what happens next, but is this toxic? Is this clutter for you? Well, if you say no to that, you free up the space for you to become a better decision maker, for you to become a clearer thinker. And if at some point in the future you need to recreate that, you can do that from a space where you know who you are. It's kind of like a relationship where you say, this is hell right now and I got to go. But maybe in the future you decide, hey, I think we can be friends again. I think we can be cool again because now I know who I am. Yeah. yeah. And maybe the same thing is true with our material possessions. Yeah, this thing is not serving me right now. It might serve me in the future, but that's not a story that I'm going to tell myself that it might ho- it might serve me in the future, so therefore I need to cling to it, right? The fear that we experience here, it's crazy when I think about it, right? It's the fear of letting go, any fear that we have. Any fear that we have is ultimately the fear of uncertainty. Mm. You don't have the fear of certainty. If you are certain about something, it's not scary. It's only scary when there's uncertainty there. But where's all the possibility? It's in the uncertainty. Where's all the magic? It's in the uncertainty. And I mean that quite literally. If you watch a magician do magic tricks, but then you know how they did every aspect of it, it loses all of its magic. And the same thing is true with what we acquire, Mm. what we hold on to, with what we let go of. If I had 100% certainty around all everything in my life, my life would be infinitely boring. I I would be looking for what? Uncertainty. The way that we describe it now is variety. I need some variety or some novelty in my life. Well, what you're really looking for is uncertainty. And what you're doing by letting go is creating room for some of that uncertainty. And I think that's an an important distinction to make. I'm not letting go of something. That act in and of itself is not terrifying. I'm terrified of what the potential consequences of that might be. Mm -hmm. But I can also be really excited about what the potential consequences might be. Here's an antidote that I have Mm. for that fear, though. And that fear is, I have to say it out loud. When I say I'm afraid to get rid of this t-shirt, I'm afraid to get rid of this phone, I'm afraid to get rid of my Twitter account. As soon as I start saying these things out loud, they cease to have the same weight. Because it sounds absurd to say, I'm, I'm afraid to get rid of this pair of blue jeans. What are you really afraid of? What's the fear behind that fear? Because that's not a fear. Getting What could happen if I get rid of these blue jeans? Oh, I'll never find another pair that fits like this again. Yeah, you might not. You might find a pair that fits better, though. You might find a pair that you enjoy more. You might make room for the clothes that you actually want to wear. Whatever it might be, you're simply making room not for certainty, but for more uncertainty, that certainty that gives you that sense of spontaneity and joy that clinging to the stuff just doesn't give you at all. Yeah, and imagine if we substitute a person for this and I were to say to you or some other person, I'm gonna stay with you, not because I love you, but because I think you're the best that I can do. Oof. I mean, that's, that's nothing you wanna do to another person. And that's definitely not something that you want to do to yourself. But what if I can't do any better? Well, as the person that you are today, 
this is never going to serve you. The best that you can do is to bet on you and to become the best version of you. And, and, and when you become that, whether you go back to something that you had in the past or you move on to something new, you'll be able to deal with it. You'll be able to interact with it. You'll be able to engage it and to love it from a place of peace and self-respect that you didn't previously have. And that's really the goal of all of this. It's not about should I have this or should I have that? It's who is the person I really want to become? And how do I establish a relationship with things that expresses that self-authenticity, that self-knowledge, that self-love, that self-respect? And is that version of me clinging to all the stuff from my past? You know, intrinsically, the answer is no. Hmm. Holding on to those things weighs you down, prevents you from moving in the direction you want to go. And as soon as you understand that, you won't need to know how to let go. Those things that you're clinging to will become so repulsive, you won't hold on to them at all. Our next question is from Buck. Hi, this is Buck, Helena, Montana. Curious about paper clutter and how the best way to work with that doesn't care about it when I need order. Um, it's something that just eats at me every day. And I uh, think I have a fairly good handle on it, but just curious what triggers or what things or what ways I can do to help subside some of that anxiety. Thanks so much. Buck, it sounds like you need to declutter the other person in your life (laughs) and that will bring great order, right? In fact, if we have no relationships in our life at all, then... My life will be perfect and complete. I mean, this is the story I tell myself sometimes because I relate to Buck. I I need my space to be a particular way. I'm obsessive and compulsive and paper clutter also drives me crazy. And I'll give you some rules that we've set up that I think will help. One is the no piles rule. And if you're doing this with someone else in the house, you have to get them on board. You have to show them the why behind it instead of just the what or the how to. How-tos are boring and people don't want to see like, oh, you, what, you're just telling me that I have a new rule that I have to follow? Yeah. That doesn't help anyone. In our house, though, what we do is we have something we call the no piles rule. We don't let any mail or packages or bags or any accessories pile up on the counter. Flat surfaces become a repository for excess stuff that I don't want to deal with right now. And so the no, no piles rule says at the end of each day, We eliminate any piles that have accumulated on flat surfaces. I do want to talk specifically about paper clutter and address this with you because this question comes up a lot around paper clutter. And I think there are the three most common types of paper clutter are photos, books, and then documents. Usually we think about documents when we think about paper clutter. We got this mail that we keep here, receipts, or uh, this tax information I have to hold on to. And then we just start stuffing things into drawers or file cabinets, pretending we're organizing it, but we're just hoarding the clutter in a different way. And so I'll address these one at a time really quickly. By the way, you can go back and listen to our paper clutter episode. It's episode 322. Uh, If you want to do a deep dive on paper clutter, we also did a episode called hidden clutter because one of the most insidious forms of hidden clutter are these documents and and photos and things that, that creep into our lives that are hidden forms of clutter. That's episode 272 for hidden clutter. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes. But real quick, if you want to deal with your photos, you can get a photo scanner like the one we have. I'll put a link to the photo scanner that I use in, actually Ryan and I share it. And so I will go 
back and forth if I need to scan some photos. And that way we don't each have to have one, right? And so you can share this because it's a couple hundred bucks to have a really good high quality photo scanner. But then you can scan all the photos you have in your house. And what you'll learn is most of those photos you're holding on to, if they weren't worth being scanned, they probably weren't worth holding on to in the first place. Yeah. And that also gives me a backup as well. Even if I want to hold on to the some physical photos, what happens if I have a flood or a fire? Well, now I can have them backed up on my hard drive or in the cloud. I use Dropbox. You can use whatever service you want to use, like Google Photos, to have some redundancy there as well. I also have a separate hard drive. So if anything were to happen to those photos. And then uh, beyond that, if, but besides your photos, any books that you're holding on to that are kind of getting in the way, especially old, I find a lot of people hold on to old textbooks that they're never going to reference again, but they think they might just need it one day. The truth is you could probably let go of those things, but there might be some books where you're like, I reference them occasionally, so I don't want to get rid of them. Well, there's a service, $1scan.com, that will scan your books for you and they will incinerate the old book so you don't have to deal with it anymore. And $1scan.com, they're not a sponsor of ours at all. I have used them for a couple things in the past. And then they will send you the digital file. So guess what? The books are now searchable. You can type in the keyword and you can find the passage in the book that you were looking for in the first place. It makes it so much easier and it gets rid of that clutter. If you don't want to scan your own photos, by the way, scanmyphotos.com mm. is a really great website. Uh, again, not a sponsor. We're not affiliated with them in any way, but scanmyphotos.com. If you just have a box of photos you want to send to them, they'll take care of it for you. They will scan your photos and get rid of those photos, send them to you on a disk or a digital file so you have access to those things. Uh, I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to the 10 best scanning services for 2023. Hmm. It's a little article you have there. But what do we do about our document clutter? Because that is a whole other thing. The truth is I don't hold on to many documents. As soon as I scan them, I get rid of them. There are a few documents I have to have, but even those I have digital copies and I generally don't need to have a physical copy. We always hear, you have to hold on to your taxes for seven years. Well, I talked to my accountant, talk to your accountant before you do this, but um, I talked to my accountant. He's like, as long as you have the digital version of your taxes, you're totally fine. You don't have to have a paper copy of everything. I do have a paper copy of a few things. I have one file that has like my social security card and it has my birth certificate and a few other things that I do need the physical copy of, but everything else is digitized. Now, there are a couple ways you can do that. If you have an iPhone or a smartphone, generally you can just use the camera on there as a scanner now. Apple Notes is a great scanning program, turns mm -hmm. your photos into a PDF, which is really helpful for any paper clutter that you have. And you deal with it right away so you're not waiting until the end of the year or several years later and you got stacks of papers you have to deal with. One more link I'm going to put into the show notes, and I'll be interested, TK, see if you have any questions about this. This is an article from IndoorMood.com, and it's called, Had Enough of Paper Clutter? This is the Best System. It's like 12 pages long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I really like their system. If you're looking for a system to remove document clutter in your life, 
Here's what they use. Every tool you'll need to conquer paper clutter. Here's a list of supplies you'll need for this system. Number one, inbox. I use a simple basket from Ikea that can sit on a shelf. Now, obviously, you can get a box uh, inbox from anywhere, right? Amazon, Target, you can make one yourself. You can go to Etsy, get a local maker who makes a beautiful basket for you. Just make sure you check first to see which store your particular political group is protesting right now so that you don't buy the wrong product and be happy by mistake. <laughs> so having some sort of box for your papers, and I think this helps with the no piles rule as well. Having a place to put that stack of papers so that you have one destination. You don't have a pile of papers here, a pile of papers here, a few on my desk. Nope. You've got one inbox for your papers. They sit there until you have time to process them. I would do that daily personally, but maybe call it once a week for you. I'm going to process these once a week so that you're not dealing with it a month from now, a quarter from now, a year from now, a huge stack of papers. That's when it becomes overwhelming. But if you have a small stack from one day or even one week, guess what? It's not a big deal. Number two, a fast duplex document scanner. We'll put a link to the document scanner that I use personally. It's document and photo. So you can kill two birds with one stone or massage two birds with one stone. <laughs> How about that? And so uh, use some sort of scanner for your documents. You can feed them right in. Or if you don't have that many documents, you can just use your phone for that as well. Having a computer is number three on here, obviously. So this person says, I use my laptop for everything, working on professional contracts, following recipes for the kitchen, blogging, etc. cetera. Uh, of course, using my computer for the scan documents. Hmm is one thing that I do. Uh, number four, this is often overlooked, uh, having a paper shredder. I don't have one at home. We have one here at the studio. So I'll often just bring a stack of papers I want to shred <laughs> yep. in my bag. That way I don't have to own two of them. We already have one. I have access to one. Or quite often, if you have a local document center like a FedEx, Kinko's, or just a local business center. Yep. They usually have shredding or incinerating services, and they yep. charge you like a penny per page or a penny per 10 pages or whatever it yep. might be. So you don't have to buy a paper shredder. We'll put a link to a paper shredder that we use downstairs. It is a high grade one. We can shred 20, 30 pages at once, which is awesome. But you don't need that to be able to get rid of those sensitive documents. Yeah. Number five, online cloud backup. I use Dropbox. This person says I use iDrive. You know, whatever service works well for you. We don't recommend one in particular. A small file box is number six. Um, and so that's if you are actually going to file some stuff away. There are some things you may want to keep. I have a file cabinet at home. Works really well for me but having a small file box can work also. Mm -hmm. I have excess room in that file cabinet. It feels good. Every time I open it, there's like one little folder in there. <laughs> and then I have a few little accessories. I keep my pins and, and a few other things in there as well. And they use a few other things here, an art portfolio, some photo boxes, to-do lists with Google Keep, calendar, notebook, staple remover, those are the things they use to organize their document clutter. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes. Any questions or anything to add, TK? Man, that's a very thorough and helpful list. I learned a few new tricks from that. Um, I'll address one um, related area here because it sounds like there's not just a digital clutter or a paper clutter issue, but also a communication clutter. Because if there were no other people involved, it sounds like Buck would implement a system and would be happy with it. But it sounds like it's the addition of other people, right? That kind of throws them off. And so um, 
One thing I'd just say to add on is that persuasion is, is not just a matter of rhetoric, but it's also a matter of conviction. How you feel when you are articulating what your needs are and what the boundaries are is going to have as much of an impact on how that other person receives you as the words you use. It's kind of like when a little baby is, is, is crawling and trips or something like that, and then the baby looks at you for that decisive split second. And if you go, ah, the baby goes, ah, or if you go, oh, are you okay? The baby starts crying. Like it, it, there are these moments where it's our reaction that affects how other people feel about it. And so if you're real defensive about what you need, it's going to feel like we're in a fight, even if you're articulating yourself perfectly, right? And so get clear with yourself about why this matters to you and how you want to feel at home. And then you can have a conversation before you say a word about boundaries that goes something like, hey, when I come home from a hard day's work, there's nothing that I love more than my home feeling like a safe haven, a place of peace. And a big part of that for me is just an orderly household. And I'm not asking anyone to be just like me, to need what I need or to think that anything that they do is wrong. But I love to make some suggestions here for some things that would really work well for me and make me a lot healthier. And I would love to get your feedback and see if we can find a way to make it work for everybody. Because even though sometimes you can play the power card and be like, this is how it's going to be and you can get away with it, be careful because you change the dynamic of the relationship once you do that. There's nothing sweeter than getting people to cooperate with you by enlisting them and enrolling them voluntarily, getting them on board with your vision rather than trying to rule by fiat and manipulation because you might get what you want, but what you have to sacrifice energetically at your home just reproduces the problem in another area. So those would be my tips on how to make make the needs known here. Yeah, and I think also what you're exposing here, if it gets in the way, it's clutter. And so the other person in the house may not see it as clutter because it's not getting in the way for them. Buck, you probably have the same problem that I have. I want my house to look like no one lives in it. Mm. <laughs> and who you live with, who you're living with, they don't care about yeah. that. They don't care about aesthetics the same way you do. They don't care about paper clutter the same way you do, the mm. document clutter the same way you do. They're not wrong for that. Yeah. You have different preferences. You're also not wrong for it, Buck. There isn't a real problem here. Yep. The problem is the way that we perceive it. And then that problem is amplified by how we communicate, as TK just illustrated. Yeah. We got a question here. This one is from Ben. This is Ben, a Patreon subscriber calling from Dayton, Ohio. Both Ryan and Josh have posited that they desire their partners to be happy, even if that means they choose to leave the relationship. This because they have also said that every day they are choosing to stay in the relationship because they desire to be with their partner. These thoughts I share regarding the relationship between my wife and myself. Additionally, both of you have gone through a separation from a previous spouse. Similarly, my partner of seven years has recently confessed that she wants to permanently separate so she can figure out who she is and what she believes. I, however, do not share the same feelings of a desired separation. Although our beliefs are bifurcating, I believe we could work through some of the resulting challenges and press on to a new and different type of relationship. Having gone through a separation yourselves, what observations would you have for someone desiring their partner to be happy, 
even as they walk out of the relationship that you yourself desire to stay in. Also, how does someone best let go of a former identity that has served them well, but will no longer have a purpose in their life moving forward, i.e. husband, son-in-law, etc.? Thanks for all you do. I look forward to your response. Ben, it took me a long time to get where I am at right now, but I want to answer your question directly, and I've got some insights for you. But if Bex were to come to me today and say exactly what Ben's partner is saying to him, I would applaud her for it, and I would thank her for it. And I wouldn't try to hold on to her, even though my first sense would be like, wait, no, can you stay? I I need to hold on. Because she's already gone. She's already made that. I mean, this decision was made months, if not years ago. At least it started then, right? And this point of bifurcation didn't happen last week when she came to you. It started way, way, way before that. And she saw herself growing in a different direction. And if Bex came to me and she said, hey, I've been growing in a different direction, I would applaud that because the alternative is what? Well, I can force myself to go down her path and that's not going, now she's dragging me somewhere where I don't want to go. And by the way, she didn't even ask me to go down this path. She's asking to go down this path alone. And the opposite of that would be, I could drag her down my path. And Ben, that may be inadvertently what you were doing. You didn't know it. And so you didn't do anything wrong in that scenario. You just simply didn't understand that she was going down a path she no longer wanted to travel. Hmm. And so, yes, I would feel conflicted about this. I would certainly feel upset, but I feel more upset if I forced my wife to go down a path that she didn't want to go down anymore. And I'd have gratitude for the time we've spent together. And TK, I saw this video. My wife actually sent this one to me yesterday. It had nothing to do with this. But since last week, we talked about aliens. I want you to take a look at this video. This is an alien's thoughts on marriage and relationships. Hmm. So you are saying marriage is two humans promising each other to be together forever? Yeah, you don't have romantic relationships on your planet? Of course we do, but we don't promise each other to be together in the future. Oh yeah. Wait, why? Well, we know that the connection to each other is based on our current energetical state. And it is a law in the universe that energy is always shifting and moving. So no one knows if our energy will match in the future. So you guys don't have long-term relationships? Sometimes we do when the energy of both parties grows in the same direction. My last relationship lasted for centuries and we just parted ways. Her name was Alsalza. So you're telling me that you're not sad that Alsalza is not your alien girlfriend anymore? (laughs) Funny humans again. (laughs) Of course not. The universe is based on abundance. And as long as we're following our joy, the universe will bring someone who's more aligned with us. Huh. Marriage might have been invented so humans feel safe forever. Mmm. It's a confident alien, too. He's like, of course not. Everybody loves me. (laughs) The universe is based on abundance, right? And that's where confidence Mm. comes from, is that abundance mindset. And quite often what happens here is there's a scarcity, right? It's the fear of the unknown, as we were talking with the previous caller about, Mm. we get a fear of the unknown. I don't know what's going to happen after this. In fact, I'm even willing to 
accept a relationship that is subpar. But Ben's saying, well, this relationship isn't subpar to me. Well, it's a subpar relationship if it's subpar to one person in that relationship. Therefore, it is subpar. And so there's that scarcity mindset that creeps into all of us. It's the reason that we overconsume. It is the reason that we buy things that we don't need. It's the reason that we stay at a job that we hate. It's the reason that we stay in a relationship that makes someone else miserable or makes us miserable. It's the reason that we do many of the things we do, not out of abundance, but out of scarcity. I'm afraid of losing this. I'm going to cling to it. And the more I cling to it, the tighter I cling to it, what happens, it actually hurts me as well. And so Ben, if you cling to this relationship, it's not only going to hurt the other person, it's going to hurt you. Mm. And you can communicate without clinging. Something that I learned very well from you, Josh, and I think of the words of Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, submit it for your consideration, is you do a really good job at saying, hey, I respect your choice, no matter what you do, but submit it for your consideration. Here's something to be aware of as you're making that choice. And I've seen you with Ryan, myself, and a number of other people do that. And you've watched the person make a choice that seems as if it completely ignored your consideration. And you truly don't care. You truly don't hold them against, hold it against them. But you simply gave yourself a chance to make that person aware of a consideration you thought was important. And that's something in any relationship you have where you've earned that person's trust and respect you have the opportunity to do. That's one of the benefits of being friends. You get to say, I respect your choice. I'm not trying to control you, but submit it for your consideration. And everything you expressed about the way you feel about it, Ben, was so perfectly worded. You couldn't write a script that expresses your heart more beautifully than you expressed it. And I think you have an opportunity to both acknowledge that she's going to make the choice she wants to make and you can't control it anyway. and to put it on the record, say, I respect whatever you decide to do because ultimately I love you, not just as a person that I care about, but as a human being who has the right to make the choices they want to make without the coercion of another. And so I respect you and I love you either way. However, here's what I'd love for you to consider. I think we can work this out without being apart. And here's why. Here's what that would look like for me. And you know what? she might look at that and go, hey, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't considered that. That does seem like a plausible way that we can both win. Or she might say, even given that consideration, I got to go. And that would just be there for you to accept. But you do have that opportunity. There's what you can't control. There's what you can control. And I think there's space to honor both of those things. And we've all been in a relationship in which the other person clings a little too tightly. And that further drives us away as well. And so I think that's important. And what you're illustrating here, TK, is a way to avoid that clinging. This is for your consideration. I'm not trying to convince you. And I often lead with that with people when I'm talking to you. Hey, I'm not going to convince you of this. Here's some more information that you may not be privy to. Do what with it what you will. Right. I won't be offended either way. Because if we go looking for offense, we will find it for sure. If I look to be offended, I will be offended. So look, I just want you to know, I'm not going to be offended by this. Whatever decision you make, I just want to put this on the table for you to consider. My wife and I, we talk about this all the time on her podcast. It's called How to Love. You can check it out at howtolove.show. 
And really, the name is a misnomer and it's an intentional misnomer. We're not giving advice. We don't dole out advice. It's not about how to in the methodical sense and the mechanical sense. It's about understanding what it means to love another person. That's why I thought that alien video was so perfect for Ben here, because it's a satirical take on something that is really serious. And sometimes these most serious topics, we have to talk about them with some levity. Otherwise, it'll crush us. But by the way, personal uh, personal anecdote. One time, um, I argued my wife into watching a basketball game with me. Why? Because I got married during the NBA playoffs, right? Um, and so we're on our honeymoon, and there was a Bulls, Derrick Rose Bulls, Miami Heat game going on uh, on like day two or day three of our honeymoon. And uh, man, I just argued her into just going to a bar and watching this game with me. She really wanted to do something else. But I pulled out all the stops and sold her on it. She was like, all right, but you got to promise me it won't ruin your day if the if the Bulls lose. I completely lied about that. I'd be like, totally, I'd be cool in the Bulls lost. And I was pissed, <laughs> ruined my day. No. But, <laughs> but check it out. So we went to the bar, right? And we're there watching the Bulls and the Heat. And it's the first quarter. We're in the middle of the first quarter. And she's like, how much longer is this? And in that moment, I was like, this is why you don't argue someone into doing something that they don't want to do for themselves. There's no way I can sit here and enjoy this game if in the middle of the first quarter, she's already asking how much longer and she doesn't enjoy it. Even if when you argue someone into doing something that they don't want to do for you, even when you win, you lose. You know, just respect people's choice and it'll work out better for the both of you. Let's move on to some social media questions. We got one from Instagram. Zion has a question for us. If you aren't willing to go all in on something, is that a sign that it isn't really that important to you? Mm. Fundamentally, I think the answer to that is yes, but that's not a bad thing. Mm. Just because something isn't important to you doesn't mean that it should be important to you, right? You know, gardening is not important to me. I might, I could try it a little bit, but it's not that important. So I'm not going to go all the way in. Why? Because it's not that important to me. The way Here's the way I think about it, TK. If your home is being invaded, you cease to worry about doing the dishes. Say it one more time. If your home is being invaded, you cease to worry about doing the dishes. Yeah, that's right. Because I'm trying to grab a dish and <laughs> whack the person upside the head with it. <laughs> like a frisbee. Something has become more important in that moment. If you're sitting right. there doing the dishes and, and someone breaks into your house, the thing that was important is no longer important because there is something that is more mm. pressing in the moment. And so something that's important to me, like writing, I treat it like a home invasion. Nothing else is going to stop me from doing it because someone's breaking into my house right now. I'm not like, yeah, but hey, can you hold on? I have to mow the lawn. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you hold on? I was just mopping the floors. No, I go all the way in because it writing is important to me. Uh, I, but I'm sick today. Yeah, it's a home invasion. It doesn't matter mm. if I am sick. Mm. If someone is breaking into my home, I'm going to do whatever it takes to handle it. It's the most important thing in my life. It is literally the priority. 
And that's why we don't have priorities. It's nonsensical to think about the word priorities as a plural. It wasn't a plural until the 20th century. You can't have 20 priorities. Priority means the first thing. You can't have 20 the first things. If something is truly important to you in this moment, it is the priority and nothing else is the priority. And I treat anything that is important to me like it's a home invasion. Someone's breaking into my home. And right now, Writing is that thing for me. Right now, podcasting is that thing. I'm not worried about the other things. Oh, I forgot to pay the bills. I leave the stove on. Whatever. It doesn't matter right now. Podcasting in this moment is the priority. There's no other priority in this moment. Yeah. And to stick with that analogy about the the home invasion, suppose I'm in the middle of doing my dishes and then an invader comes in and I turn into John Jones, Conor McGregor, and I, I choke him out, Right. And then my wife sees the dishes undone. She says, you don't care about the dishes. I'd be like, come on now. I just choked out. I just turned into Conor McGregor, John Jones. Can you appreciate the artistry of what I did to this guy? I just did him like John Moran would have. <laughs> oh, God. TK's in the kitchen floor with him in an arm bar going, really? Got him in a triangle. <laughs> the, the, the moral of the story, uh, as terrible as the story is, the moral of the story is that just because something else in your life might take priority over this other thing, it doesn't mean there is no place for that other thing. It doesn't mean that you don't care about that other thing. It doesn't mean you should beat yourself up about not caring about that right now. So when you don't go all in on something, that doesn't mean you don't love it or it has no place in your life. It could mean that there are other matters in your life right now more urgent that need to be taken care of or It could also mean that it's only a value to you to do that thing if you can do it in a way that's right for you. One of the problems with the way we think about passion is we tend to think think about it in isolation. But there is no one who loves anything independently of any consideration whatsoever. I love baseball. That doesn't mean I want to watch a baseball game at three in the morning, right? I love writing. That doesn't mean I enjoy writing about any topic at any time for any reason. Everything that we love has conditions around it that are necessary to to, uh, sustain the energy of that love. And so sometimes when we find a lot of resistance going on with these things that we know we love, but we have a hard time doing, it may be because we're trying to do those things in a way that's too scripted, too conventional, too in accordance with someone else's expectations, or according to some story we're telling ourselves about how it always has been done. And what might be needed is to step back and say, what's the best way for me to do this thing? And what's a good amount of it for me to do that works for the life that I have? Mm, That's good. Yeah, because the alternative to that is to let everyone else's important task dictate your day. And that's quite often what we do. Our inbox becomes the repository of things we should do. But our inbox is only filled by other people's requests, other people's needs. Nothing wrong with that. They're expressing their needs to you. Great. But if 24 hours of my day is dictated by the needs of other people, when are my needs being met? Yeah. Another question here. This one's from Ty on Instagram. I feel like I have all the stuff in my home sorted, but once I'm at work, it's a whole different story. How can we apply minimalism in the workplace? To simplify is to create room for what matters. And that is true at home. 
It's true at the workplace. It's true in your car. It's true in your hobbies. It's true in your vocation. Whatever it may be, if you're simplifying, what you're actually doing is just creating more room for what matters to you. Now, often we tend to do the opposite. There's this old apothem that if you want to get something done, ask a busy person to do it for you. Mm. Because a busy person is good at GTD, productivity, <laughs> get things done, right? And so it's fine to get things done, but what are you busy about as Thoreau would have said, right? Because you might be busy, 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 and that's what the workplace tends to be. It's busy for the sake of busy. It's you're going to come in for eight hours, even if you have three hours of work. You are going to be here the entire time. And so you can either stretch out that three hours of work or we'll just give you more. We'll heat more, more, more. And yes, you might be productive, but are you being effective? And usually the answer is no. Working eight straight hours with one break in the middle is probably not going to be the best use of your time. But we've trained ourselves like automatons or factory workers to simply mm. do, 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 do. Well, how do we simplify that? Mm. We let go of anything that gets in the way of that effectiveness. That's right. You know, the ability to be ourselves is kind of an art. It requires a lot of adaptability, a lot of creativity. And sometimes we utter cliches like just be yourself. Uh, and we fail to account for the fact that being yourself is a learning process it's a process of discovery because there are certain contexts where it's easier to be ourselves than in others. Sometimes we can go to work and we have an easy time being organized, being in control, like keeping everything together. And then you go home and the kids just know how to push your buttons and you have a harder time being the composed version of yourself when you're interacting with the kids or whatever it may be. And so it may be the case that if you're really organized and orderly at home, but you're not able to do this at work, there may be some stories you're telling yourself at work that's causing boundaries to be lost in the shuffle, right? Um, that's causing this ability that you clearly have to not find natural expression in this new context. And so I would acknowledge what I'm doing well as evidence that I have it in me. I have the potential to do this anywhere, but there are some differences at my work. I can appreciate those differences, right? I don't have to deny that I have this ability, but I can say, what are the stories that I'm telling myself about work? How can I unpack them? And how can I introduce the boundaries that are working for me at home in this new space? And that's just going to require some learning. You can be yourself at work, but you might have to learn some new tricks so that you can know how to be yourself at work. Yeah. And you, those new tricks might actually come from identifying the complexities, because what are you really trying to do here? Simplicity is, is a lack of complexity, right? Mm. And where do you find complexity? It's where is the chaos? Where are the stressors at work? Yeah. What is angering me? What is frustrating me? What is boring me? That's complexity in a way, right? Where are the complexities? Where is the chaos in your workplace? Because you can't simplify until you identify 
what you want to simplify. It's not that I just want to simplify the workplace. That doesn't even make any sense. What does that mean? I want to simplify the things that feel chaotic at the workplace the same way that I wanted to simplify the things that were chaotic at home. When you simplify your house, you don't just get rid of everything and come home to an empty house after you've thrown everything in a dumpster. That would actually make things worse. And the same thing is true with the workplace. You don't just walk into your boss's office, say, screw you, I quit. Or you don't just get rid of your desk and your computer and your phone and say, I've simplified. Well, no, that got in the way of doing what is effective. Where are the complexities? Where's the chaos in your workplace? If you identify that and you get behind the why, why is this so complex? Yeah. Uh, Because we've always done it this way. We've always used that system. We've always had these meetings at this time every single week. Well, why do we do that? And you can start asking why of the people around you, not in a way that's accusatory or we shouldn't be doing this, but get curious around it. That curiosity will help you identify the source of the chaos. And that is where you simplify. Absolutely, man. It makes me think of that uh, movie, The Negotiator where uh, Kevin Spacey plays this uh, hostage negotiator and he's literally on the phone with a terrorist being the most composed, smooth, intelligent guy, completely handling his this situation while at the same time, he is completely helpless to get his teenage daughter to just turn down the television a little bit. She's straight punking him. Every time mm. he requests in the nicest way, whatever, she just has zero respect for him. And you just see this juxtaposition that beautifully illustrates the complexity of being human. He has what it takes, man, but he hasn't successfully figured out how to translate that at home. And sometimes it's the opposite. We got to figure out at home but how do we translate it at work? And sometimes it's both. We got to figure out at work and at home, but how do we translate it when we're at the parents' house, when we're at the holidays? And that's the game of life, right? How do we increase the amount of freedom that we have to be the person that we know we want to be in any context, not just the context where we figured it out and know it feels safe? Mm, So good. Another question here. This one's from YouTube. Vera has something for us. I don't enjoy gifts at all. I don't like getting them. And I definitely don't like trying to figure out what to get for other people. I find it overwhelming and a waste of time to me. How do I avoid obligations around gift giving? Well, Vera, a gift turns into a curse when it becomes an obligation. Mm. If you feel like you have to give a gift to someone or you have to receive a gift, And of course, the metaphor that I like to use, TK, if I handed you a brick of dog crap, (laughs) and I said, hey, man, I got this gift for you, it's going to be really easy for you to reject that. Now, of course, that's a parodic exaggeration of gift giving, but quite often when gift giving is obligatory, what happens is I give you some crap that you didn't want. That's right. And by me giving you a bunch of crap that you don't want, and now you even have to pretend to be grateful for it. You have to put on a smile. Oh, thanks, Josh. I really was hoping to get a piece of crap. <laughs> I love your laugh. I just, I just have a visual of a brick. That's just too much feces. <laughs> this is a big dog. <laughs> 
And, and so where we are right now is we're in a culture that expects yeah. us to be grateful for the crap people give us. Oh, man. And it expects yeah. us to also expect crap from other people. Yeah. If you didn't get me something, just get me something. I don't care what it is. Then you don't care about me. Well, do you really care about me if you just got me some crap? Yeah. That's so true, man. Another aspect of this gift-giving obligation is that you have to muster up the courage to disappoint people early. Now, you must disappoint people. That's a part of life. There's no escaping that. We are all continually disappointing someone somewhere. But when you can dis- disappoint people earlier, you, you, you allow them to have time to not only get over it, but you, you create the space where they can process things in a way that leads to a healthier response and to increased respect for you. So let me give an example. This often comes up in the uh, professional space where someone says uh, they agree to a deadline. I'm going to get this report done by the 31st of this month. And they've got some insecurities about their ability to do it. There are some things coming up as the month is going on and they're nervous, they're scared because they don't want to disappoint. It's the 14th of the month. And they're thinking, I might not be able to hit this deadline, but they don't want to disappoint. So they say, well, let let me see where I'm at a week from now. And then it's like the 22nd. And they're like, I'm totally not going to hit this deadline. It's going to take me three extra days. But they don't want to disappoint. And so they wait. And then it's the 31st. And then the person they made the promise to says, how are we looking on that project? And they're like, well, this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened. And that person's usually a little livid. Mm. A lot of trust is broken, right? Why? Because the expectation that it was going to be delivered was on this day and we're here at this day. And this is the first time I'm finding out that there's a problem. And I made all of these other plans contingent on you delivering on our agreement. I've had conversations with this person. I've blocked out this time. I've committed resources to this. But if that person had simply disappointed early and said, hey, on the 12th, I won't be able to deliver on the 31st. I'm going to need a few a few days That other person might have still been disappointed, but because they would have had time to adjust, the disappointment would be much easier for them to process. If the family's expecting you to come over on Christmas, that message ain't going to go very well if you call them up on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. But if you call them up in the middle of March and say, FYI, this, this, and that, we won't be able to make it for Christmas. Oh yeah, they'll still be mad. They'll still be disappointed. But they've got time to process and that gives you a much better chance. And so when it comes to gifts, I think build a reputation for being the kind of person that you want to be. And when you get an invite to something, be like, hey, I don't do the whole gift giving thing, but tell people what you're going to do instead. Yes. I, I won't be doing the gift giving thing, but I'm totally happy to support you all. I'm definitely going to be there with bells and whistles on. I'm super excited but I just want to be transparent and give you a heads up because I know this is a normal custom that's usually part of the expectation. People can usually respect that when you're upfront with them, even if it initially feels disappointing. If you're going to disappoint, disappoint early, upfront, and in a manner that's direct. And you won't have to do it often because people will know. That's just you. That's just his MO. That's just how they are. I think you'll find you, at a certain point, you won't even have to tell them that right. I don't do gifts. You can simply tell them what you are willing to do, mm-hmm. right? And instead of saying, no, 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 get your gifts away from me. I don't want that piece of crap, right? That's why I use that as a metaphor here. Obviously, don't tell anyone that you think their gifts are crap, and I don't want to get you crap either, yeah. right? 
Instead of telling them no, tell them what you are willing to do. And I find that to be much more powerful. We have two rules in our Minimalist rule book. It's 16 rules for living with less. You can download it for free at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. One of them is the minimalist gift giving rule. And one is the minimalist gift getting rule. You're like Mm. a minimalist. Yeah, I, I still get gifts as a minimalist, but I've set up these rules in my life for giving gifts. So I'm not telling people, no, 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 I'm not gonna give you a gift. But I have a rule around that. It has to do with consumable items, being able to give you something that you will enjoy. And I did it with intention, right? And also asking for better gifts is part of the minimalist gift getting rule. You can download that for free. There's 16 rules for living with less in there. You can read that in like half an hour. The whole book is, uh, it's 16 chapters, but they're really, really short. They're like a paragraph or two each. And you'll walk away with 16 rules that will help you live more with less. Theminimalists.com slash rulebook for that. Alabama, what time is it? It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We're at The Minimalist during the lightning round. We each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. Uh, we put the minimal maxims that we utter here today in the show notes over at theminimalists.com. So you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. Today's question comes from Melon. How do we redirect negative thoughts that come up when we look at possessions that are holding us back? We got a 60-second mm. shot clock on uh, up there for our good friend TK Coleman. What do you got for us, TK? Negative reactions to negative thoughts produce more negative results. There are moments in life when we simply have to confront or consider information that feels unpleasant. The doctor says your leg is broken, you need surgery. A company you enjoy working for says... We have to do layoffs and part ways. A lover says, I don't love you anymore. Infinite variations, but you get the point. Sometimes the truth hurts, but it's important to remember that it always helps and it always heals. And if we treat the truth like it's a threat, just because it doesn't feel good to hear, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to get the help and the healing that we need to become the person that we need to be. Dr. Zach Bush said on this show that our pain is a gift because it's what allows our nervous system to do the kind of communication that's necessary for the body to repair itself. The same is true of the heart, the mind, the soul. Our pain is a gift. That's not just some bit of forced optimism. So when you have negative thoughts about things in your life that's holding you back, you don't have to force yourself to feel positive about it. Instead, you can confront the truth and do whatever you got to do to unpack the stories you're telling yourself and to let go of the things that are stopping you from being healthy and free. That's so good. You reminded me of uh, Wayne Dyer. He said that the snake bite is never the thing that kills you. It's always the venom that begins to course through your veins. Well, those Mm. negative thoughts that you're talking about, TK, that is the venom. It's not the event that calls the negative thoughts that's killing you. It's those negative thoughts that perpetuate more negative thoughts that perpetuate more negative thoughts. And now it's a spiral, a downward spiral of negativity. So I've got something pithy for you. Give me 60 seconds, Professor Sean. Positive thoughts are the source of, not the antidote to, negative thoughts. Positive thoughts and negative thoughts are water from the same well. Of course, one is preferable to the other. Buddhists would say useful thoughts and not useful thoughts, unuseful thoughts, right? And so 
I don't need to moralize my thoughts. This one's good. This one's bad. But there are many thoughts that are useful that I have. There are many that are unuseful. And if I need one, I'm probably going to get the others. If I need the positive feedback on Twitter or on the YouTube comments, I'm going to find the negative in that, right? But if I no longer need the positive, what happens? The negative ceases to have that same weight. That's my pithy answer for you. Although I do want to bring Wayne Dyer back into the conversation real quick. I was thinking about one of his quotes. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm. And so, yes, something happened to you. And it's causing all of these negative thoughts, these bad emotions. I feel awful. But what if I change the way that I look at that? Maybe that event, maybe my mother dying, as awful as that was, as negative as that was, was a blessing for the rest of my life. Maybe it forced me to start questioning my material possessions. Mm. It forced me to question my relationships and my career. It put things into perspective. That's just me looking at it a different way. And when I look Mm. at it in that way, it changes everything. That's right. You know, that's how I've always seen the phrase, turn the other cheek. And I, I don't claim to speak with any authority here and offer some like official interpretation that other people need to believe. But, but, but I've always seen that statement. Like if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Well, what do you have to physically do to turn the other cheek? If, if, you're, if you strike this cheek, then I've got to do a 180 shift. I've got to look in the opposite direction, right? And so many times in life when it seems like things are coming against you, you're experiencing the universe in an adversarial way, Maybe look in the opposite direction. Maybe shift your perspective and get a different view on it. And you can change your relationship to it and you can change the energy around it. And ultimately, you can start responding to things in a healthy and empowering way. We're going to check in with that Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one or two or maybe three things that are going on in the life of the minimalists. Did you know that you know a New York Times bestselling author, TK? Say what? (laughs) (laughs) No, Sean and I, we started a new YouTube series over on the How to Write Better YouTube channel. I teach a writing class called How to Write Better. And we also do these short little writing lessons. And people have been sending in their questions. And the new series is called Ask a Bestselling Writer. I remember one time someone said, what gives you the authority to teach a writing class? I was like, well, I've written five books, four of which are bestsellers. And they're like, oh, okay. That that sounds like a a good reason. (laughs) Because I don't just write about writing. I don't just talk about writing. I actually write books that a lot of people find value in. And I've learned a lot about my own writing style, my own recipe, and I share those lessons. And this new series is called Ask a Best-Selling Writer. You can find it over on the How to Write Better YouTube channel. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, or you can just head on over to uh, youtube.com slash how to write better. And speaking of how to write better, I teach a class two or three times a year. Uh, The summer semester launches July 7th. That's coming up really soon. We open up the class for 48 hours only. It's a four-week writing class, howtowritebetter.org. If you head over there, you can find all the information. You can also download a free ebook over there. It's called 15 Ways to Write Better. You can read it in less than an hour, and you'll walk away with 15 tips to improve your writing today. Hey, Josh, you, you want to know what question I ask? What's that? I never ask what gives you the authority to say X, Y, Z. I ask what gives me the power to create the results that matter most to me? Answer, 
good ideas. Do you have any? If the answer to that is yes, I want them. And I don't give a damn who you are or where you're from. Give me the good stuff. Yeah. And it doesn't matter to me where you were accredited from or what certificate you have. Do you have results that resonate with me? Yeah. And if that resonates with you, and if you are someone who is a writer, you're looking to improve your writing, got those free video lessons over on the How to Write Better YouTube channel. Or if you want to take the course, I limit it to 48 hours, only 100 students as well. So you can find that at howtowritebetter.org. Malabama, what else you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Oh, by the way, we're looking for more listener insights. We are, we've gone through our, our grab bag of insights. So if you have more comments and tips or listener insights, please send your voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com uh, so we can feature your beautiful voice on a future episode. All right, here's that insight. I have a section of the closet where I put clothes that are no longer my cup of tea, but are totally functional. And when I go to a different country or across the country on a trip, I bring those clothes and I wear them, usually looking like a fool, but I end up leaving them, either donating them or getting rid of them if they truly are garbage and and ready to go. And this is a way of rewarding myself for coming home with a lighter bag and, and maybe not even a bag. Although you do need to be careful about doing that coming from a different country because you will get flagged. Anyway, fun tip makes it a little more palatable. Um, Good luck. Welcome back, y'all. We'll be checking back in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, got some talk aboutables for you. TK, there are two sides to capitalism, and this is the gross side. Like many young adults, I used to think that my goal in life was to be happy and healthy. That is until I discovered capitalism. Now my only goal is to constantly prove my worth to other people. With capitalism, my self-worth is directly tied to my productivity. And so I have transcended from just a human being to a human doing. (laughs) Amazing. Capitalism is not just an economic and political system anymore. It's also a lifestyle. Get on with it. Hashtag internalized capitalism. Capitalism is so hot that I just can't fight this feeling that no matter what I do, it's just never gonna be enough. <laughs> if you start subscribing to capitalism today, you can also get consumerism, hustle culture, hyper-individualistic culture, and if you're lucky, feeling dead inside. And don't forget, hawker exploitation. Escandalo. Unfortunately, capitalism is not free 99, but you know what is? The illusion of choice. So what are you waiting for? Never rest without feeling guilty ever again and start subscribing to capitalism today. So TK, really what we're talking about here is consumerism, the ideology that buying things externally is going to make me happy inside. We're always searching out there for the happiness that exists only in here. Mm. And then I tell myself a story. And so when they're talking about this version of capitalism, what we're really talking about is consumerism. And guess what? It doesn't work. I've tried it. I became really successful in my 20s after being really poor growing up. And both sides produced misery in me. 
whether I had money or didn't have money, I had a broke person's mindset. I had an impoverished mindset. Yeah. I had the mindset that happiness was somewhere out there. And if I could just acquire the right thing, the better thing, more things, eventually at some unknown destination, somewhere over the horizon, yeah. I will be happy. When we're talking about capitalism, though, that might be one side of it. That may be one person's definition of it. Sure. What is an alternative perspective? Yeah, you know, um, I hate the word capitalism. And I prefer to just never use that term again. You can love an idea while hating labels that create a lot of confusion around the idea. And I know lots of different people mean lots of different things around that word. And I don't, I don't intend to get into all of the nuances of that. But you know what I love? I love the, the phrase we use at Fee, which is anything peaceful. I love mutually beneficial exchange. I love voluntary cooperation. I love human collaboration. I love human flourishing. I love creativity and co-creativity. I love freedom. And, you know, for me, I love it when customers have choice. I love it when service providers are accountable to customers. I love it when creators are free to create without being artificially restricted by BS policies that give advantages to the big guy over the little guy, all those sorts of things. That's what I love and that's what it's all about. But what I see when we watch this video, I see it as a not just about the unhealthy side of capitalism, but about identity politics. And I, by identity politics, I don't just mean politicizing about things like race or gender. I mean defining who you are by virtue of your relationship to a political group or to a political term or to a political system, and then using that as a set of external rules that you're going to conform your life to. Because I am this-ism, because I belong to this group, now I'm going to adopt a lifestyle and a whole bunch of other things that don't even resonate with me, that don't even flow organically from my self-authenticity, because that is a part of what it means for me to be faithful to the religiosity of this-ism. And that's unhealthy on any side of the political spectrum. It doesn't matter what the ism is. If you lose your sense of identity in that ism, you're gone, man. You're gone. There's, there's nothing worth holding on to unless it amplifies who you are, not compromises it. I got one more talk about for you. You know what, TK, I'm wondering, where are you not a minimalist? Mm. Uh, actually, this is not a video. This is uh, me just talking about some areas of my life we had Ramit Sethi on the show, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago. Yep. And he was talking about what does it mean to live your rich yeah. life? Yeah. And it got me thinking like, okay, sometimes, and one, one example he had, he had some like outlandish examples. One is like having a phone charger in each room because that's what you want. Because it's a, a so that you desire that convenience. That might be a rich life for you, right? Yeah. And so I found for me, that's actually one of them. There are three things that I own that I think most people probably wouldn't consider to be that minimalist. One is I do have a phone charger in just about every room. There's one in my entryway, right? When you come in, because we have the entryway rule, I don't keep my phone throughout the house generally, but I, as soon as I walk in the house, I can put it on the charger. And then at night I use mine as a, um, well, I, so I can, uh, I have it as a, a digital display clock. I put it on airplane mode. And so I have a charger by my bed as well. And then, uh, there are a couple other places throughout the house. I have chargers and it's totally fine. Yeah, It enhances my life. They don't get in the way. Yeah. 
Something else I own is uh, I own quite a bit of chapstick. Now, I use plain, regular Dr. Bronner's chapstick. I have one in my pocket right now. Here, I'll pull it out. Here we go. If you're watching the video version, I take the stickers off because aesthetically, it's just more pleasing to me to, to not have a sticker on the chapstick. And so um, I have one of these in my bedside. I have them in my entryway. I have them in my pocket. I have one in my car. So I probably own five or six of these that I use regularly. My idea of a rich life is having access to chapstick. <laughs> and then I have a couple different sleep masks. I have one that's in my bedside table. I have one that is in our guest house, which I stay yep. in half the time. And then there is a, I have a friend who has a back house here that I'll stay in one or two nights a week when we're doing yeah. a recording. I keep a sleep mask there because I forgot it once and I was like, Never again do I want to forget this thing. Yeah. So I will spend the 20 bucks and uh, we'll put a link to the sleep mask I use in the show notes because everyone always asks me about it. So uh, theminimalists.com slash podcast if you want to find the show notes for this episode. And the sleep mask for me is something that dramatically enhances my life. Is there anything that you own that some people might perceive to be excess, TK? Yeah. Um, I mean, me and Professor Sean here, you know, it's, it's books. I give myself complete permission to get a book if I want the book. I don't, I don't question myself. I don't analyze it. I don't think twice about it. Um, I make whatever compromises and sacrifices I need to make in other areas of life so that I can have that kind of freedom. That's the kind of freedom that I value, the, uh, the freedom to read whatever I want and to just enjoy that. That's my luxury. That's my form of cigars and red wine, man, just cracking open a good book that I want. So, and, and, and that may seem like, okay, that's kind of a trivial observation. You like books, but I happen to like books that are often rare, old, or like really niche, right? So there's a book that I have my eyes on right now, and I'm not going to tell anybody what it is because there are only about seven copies of it. It's out of print and it's about $400. And the book's about 400 pages. I'm not going to mention what it is because I don't want the price to go up. I don't want anybody to get it and be like, I'll sell it to you for a thousand. But that's a book I'm going to get, mm. you know? And so I'm like that with my books. I, I value that sort of thing. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to get all the value out of it. But if that means not getting something else that's nice, totally cool with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, by the way, just just a kind of a broader theme. I remember when when uh, my wife and I went to Vegas, I think it was our, our, our second honeymoon, we we saw the Blue Man group. Yeah. And I was just so infatuated with all of their tricks and everything they did. I started reading interviews about them. And, and I heard one of the one of the uh, guys in the group says something to the effect of, I choose to be boring in my life so that I can be sexy in my work. And he was saying how he spends so much time being on the stage doing these shows, but that is what he loves. There's nothing that he loves more than when he's on stage and he's doing these really hard acrobatic tricks. And every day there's just a new crowd who just gets this rush of excitement and gets so excited to see them do these tricks. And he says like, on my off days, all I'm doing is practicing new tricks like this so that when I get on that stage, I can be sexy in my work. But if you saw me outside of work, you would not want to take a picture with me. You would not think I was cool and I was exciting. And I think there's something to that, although we don't all have that feeling about the same things. There are areas of life where, to me, minimalism is about where do you choose to be boring in the eyes of other people so that you can live out your own personal definition 
of what it means to have an exciting life. Yes. And what I love about this is it's not an indictment on anyone else's right. life. If I own extra chapstick, I'm not saying, TK, I, don't be- I can't believe you don't own more right, chapstick. Right. What's wrong yeah. with you? And the same thing is true. Like, wait, you don't own as many books? You, you, must, be, you must be wrong. You must be a bad person. You're not the kind of person that I want to know. Of course not. It's not saying anything about someone else. It's because what you're saying is this is what adds value to my life. And by the way, it might totally get in the way for you. And I recognize that. I'm not saying you should have a sleep mask. You should have more books. You should have more chapstick or you should have more phone chargers. No, it's just that that's what works well for me. That's what works well for TK. I will say this. I'm willing to walk away from any of those things if they cease to add value. And in fact, I've walked away from them for periods of time to temporarily deprive myself and then brought them back in with intention. Hmm. Let's do a minimalist home tour, y'all. This is number 42 in our series. If you subscribe to the video version, you can see this photo here. This one is from Min. What does Min have to say? Uh, Min said she wanted to share part of her condo in California she said, I met you guys one time at Sunday Symposium and Joshua said, men for minimalists. That's me. <laughs> That's great. Well, what a beautiful little space here. And what I see is no excess. Although some people could see, see this and say, I don't need that many seats, right? If you're just listening to the audio version here, I'm looking at the photo right now. There's a couch that seats three or four people, a few throw pillows. I have two throw pillows in my house. I don't like throw pillows at all, but my wife and daughter like throw pillows. So we have them. And now I find myself kind of warming up to them a little bit, right? Um, If I lived by myself, there's no way I would have throw pillows personally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Minimalist exposed. <laughs> Josh likes pillows. Just <laughs> and then I see two tables sort of on the edges of this photo. I see a, a lamp, which is probably really useful for reading when it is dark. And then there is a Ames chair there as well. I used to have an Ames chair that added immense value to my life. I used to sit in it every day. But I had to let it go when I moved. There was not space in my new living room, which was smaller than our old living room. And so I let it go. I sold it. Someone else is getting value from it now. If I were to cling to it, though, I'd just be cramming it into my new space. And that's quite often what we do. We try to cram our past life into present day life. And what men did here, he said, what is appropriate for my life? This is how I want to live my life. This is what I get value from in my living room. She doesn't have a main coffee table here. I see a couple little side tables there. I really get value from a coffee table. I remember TK, Ryan and I went on tour for a year in 2014. I didn't own a couch before that. If you see our first documentary, Minimalism, which is on YouTube now, by the way, came out June 18th on YouTube. You can share it with your friends and family. It's 100% advertisement free as well. But you see my apartment in that documentary. There's next to nothing in it. I didn't have a couch at the time. Hmm. When we went on the road, we were staying at a lot of Airbnbs and we were staying at readers' houses and they had couches. I enjoyed sitting on those couches. And when I got back, I realized like, you know what? I've been depriving myself of something I would enjoy. Minimalism is not about getting rid of everything and living in a stark home. It's about finding what is essential for me and what is non-essential but value-adding. Yes, I could live without a couch, but I prefer to have one. Mm. And, I, and I would say you weren't depriving yourself of something that you needed, but you were living your best life at the time. And through new experiences, you discovered something more that would bring you joy and you gave yourself permission to bring that into your life. Yeah. Right? We don't have to condemn our past in order to evolve into a better future. I love the walls. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing on them. Yeah. <laughs> and what I love about the, I mean, there's, I can't tell if it's a different color or if it's just uh, two different shades between the two walls. It is a different color. It is a different color. Okay. It's, it's kind of like a, uh, like a pale sagey green yeah. uh, behind the couch. And then it's a nice cream color uh, next to the, you said it's an Ames chair? Yeah. Is that two pieces where you yeah, can like... Yeah, there, there, there is the, the foot stand there, the ottoman. I thought that was all one chair and I went, wow, I'd love to lounge in that and read a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it's great. It's so comfortable. It's great for reading a book. I had the tall version because I'm 6'2", but <laughs> um, hopefully the person who is using it now is, is taking advantage of the tall version as well. It was super comfortable for me. My wife hated it, which was really? awesome for me. I just sat in it all the time and no one else wanted to, <laughs> to sit in it. But what I really like about this is she's not conforming to any societal standard. I must have a coffee table. I must have artwork yep. on my walls. I must, I must, I must. Okay, but is it a must for you? Yeah. Or is it a must because society prescribed it as this is what a living room is supposed to look like? That's right. Because once you get the coffee table, you also have the obligatory coffee table book that you never read. That's and right. the coasters for the coffee cups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that you never drink because exactly. you don't even like coffee. We actually have coffee table books at our house now that we read regularly. Yeah. And that is part of our rule for having them. If we're not prepared to use them regularly, if it doesn't fit within the seasonality rule, then we get rid of it. We have a couple from Axel Vavort. He's my favorite interior designer. hes I call him a maximalist. I think he would cringe at that. But he has a severe love of artistic objects. His everything, he has a lot of objects in his homes, but they are intentional and beautiful. He's not just cramming uh, more stuff in. Quick question for you. Yeah. Because I love coffee book, coffee table books. Mm -hmm. I have a few and I read them. Would you ever consider making a minimalist coffee table book or does that feel icky and consumeristic to you? No, I, I own a few that show minimalist homes. And yeah. so I, I like that. Yeah, I think that's art. Yeah. Uh, and and you can commodify art for sure. I don't think there's anything wrong with selling a piece of art that you've created, though, if you really believe in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I believe in coffee table books, so. I believe in coffee and tables, so. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we got anything else from the Patreon live stream, Alabama? Yeah, we have another question here from Violet. I would like to have all my documents and paper clutter converted into digital files, but I'm afraid of the technology failing on me. How can I get over my fear that my digital files might get lost in the cloud? What's the worst thing that would happen if they did get lost in the, in the cloud? What's the absolute worst thing that could happen if they got lost in the cloud? Ask yourself that. And if the answer is unbearable, okay. How else then can I back these up other than physical? Because I would ask you the same question. What if you don't have them in the cloud and your house catches on fire? Now, all of a sudden, you've lost your documents for good. But if they're backed up in the cloud and maybe you have them on a hard drive, now you've created a redundancy. And if you have a hard drive and they're in the cloud... Maybe you don't need the physical copy anymore. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation my brother had with a friend where uh, the friend tells my brother, he goes, man, I really want to go back to school. He goes, but it's going to take three years. And my brother says, it's not like if you don't go back to school, you're not going to lose the three years. You're still going to lose the three years. The question is, will you be someone you want to be at the end of those three years, right? So the alternative you're dealing with here isn't an alternative world where you couldn't possibly lose your stuff. Fire, thief, you know, th there are lots of different ways, you know, uh, that your stuff could just get lost if you keep it in paper form. You actually have more ways you can back it up if you do digitize. 
you, you can you can put it on a hard drive. Right. And you can even put that hard drive like in the bank if you want, mm-hmm. you know, um, and never even look at that as like the last extreme backup. You can put it on the cloud. Right. You can have copies on your computer. You, 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 you have about like five different ways you can back it up digitally so that if it breaks down in one area, you have it in another area. But whatever you do to back it up, just keep in mind that this being permanently lost due to terrible circumstances is a possibility under every scenario. It's, it's never safe in some guaranteed sense. Do you know the poet Rita Dove? She's from Akron, Ohio. And um, she really um, regrets not backing up her um, files because the she's a very famous poet, poet laureate. She, she is um, a beautiful, she writes some beautiful poems as well. But she was living, I think, in Virginia at the time. And she had all of her old writings in her attic and uh, lightning struck the house and the whole house caught on fire. The attic caught on fire and she lost everything. And there are several school <clears throat> libraries that were wanting to archive all of her old writings, her manuscripts, her first drafts. And now it's all gone. Why is it all gone? Because she refused to dig- She She wanted to. She, I meant to always, I always wanted to get around to it. And then she didn't get around to it. And nature forced her to let it go. You're going to be forced to let go at some point. And so the question is, would you rather be in charge of that letting go? Or do you want nature or someone else to be in charge for you? We got one more from the live stream, Alabama. We do indeed. This one comes from Katie. How do I let go of the fear that someday I may no longer be able to afford the lifestyle that I currently enjoy? I'd like to move past this fear of job loss, calamity, etc. So we there are a couple things here. I, I think about lifestyle inflation. Unfortunately, whenever we get a pay raise or a promotion, we tend to spend at that level and say, I'm always going to be fine here, not realizing that there are peaks and valleys in our life. And what's fascinating about that inflation in my own life is I was always spending toward the next paycheck, toward the next promotion. Oh, I'm a regional manager right now, but I was spending like a director. Oh, I'll get there someday, right? Yeah. Now, part of that is like a confidence and an optimism, yeah. which can be really healthy. This is when it's expressed unhealthfully, right? In fact, it's expressed in a way that's punishing my future self by putting myself into debt. I didn't have the money, but oh, my future self will have the money. I might as well go ahead and spend that now. And then when I walked away from the corporate world, I was only able to do so when I adjusted my life so that I was lifestyle and inflation proof. What do I mean by that? Well, I realized that when I walked away from the corporate career, I was going to take a 90% pay cut. In 2011, I made $23,000 that year. But strangely, I was more financially secure that year than I had been the previous decade. Well, why is that? Because I realized in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be complete, I didn't need all of those other comforts. The comforts can be nice. I'm not against those things necessarily. But understanding that I don't need them, I'll be perfectly fine without it. Mm. And I know I could get back to that today. Now, I have a wife and a daughter, so my life would look a little bit different from that. But I know I can get to the... 2023 equivalent to that, I could get there now if I had to, because I could forego the comforts. And how do I do that? I put myself in uncomfortable situations regularly. I bear the unbearable so I can realize that the inconveniences are totally bearable. That's good, man. That's good. 
You know, fear is interesting because we tend to place greater faith in negative things that are completely unsubstantiated than in positive things that are completely unsubstantiated. You know, imagine if I'm just walking down the street and I walk up to a random person and I go, oh man, I just got a feeling, bro. You're going to win the $10 million lottery today. Everybody that I say that to is going to be like, get out of my face, you crazy dude. Right. You're right. Because it's positive news. But suppose I walk up to some random person on the street and I go, ooh, I saw you in a dream. Something really bad's going to happen to you. I got a good chance of freaking at least a few people out. They're going to be thinking about that all day. But in both cases, I gave zero evidence for it, right? But we tend to place greater faith in negative news than in positive news. And I say, hey, demand evidence for everything, not just the positive stuff. To be a true skeptic, to be a true critical thinker doesn't just mean I only demand evidence for aliens and ghosts. No, it means I demand evidence for everything. It's okay to have some fear. Just don't place uncritical faith in your fear. It's possible that on this day, when I walk to my car, someone's going to put a gun to my back and say, give me all your money or I shoot you. That's possible. And I have nothing I can tell myself to convince me that that won't happen. So what do I do with that? Well, first, I acknowledge that that's a possibility and I breathe and I say, okay, what are some things I can control that can make me feel better about that possibility? I can look around. I can approach my car cautiously. I can be aware of my environment. I can make sure that I don't walk to my car at unscrupulous times. I can make sure I park in a, really vi a relatively visible place. Okay, that's what I can control. Now that I've decided that and I feel a little bit better about it, I'm going to choose to not focus on the stuff that I can't control precisely because I can't control it and it would be a waste of energy. And now I focus on the things that I can and on the things that make me feel better and I move on with my life. It's okay to have some fear. Just don't place faith in it. Focus on what you can control and then put your attention on other things that are constructive. Yeah. Katie, if you can live without it, you're free. If you need it, you're imprisoned. Now, you can enjoy it, but live without it? Yeah. And that is the place to be. Wow. The sense of gratitude, possibility, wonder, abundance. Yeah. I can enjoy this right now. But guess what? What's our theme song say? I bet you'll be just fine without it. Yeah. Let's do one more since this is our last Patreon live stream like this. We're upgrading the live stream. Uh, this is going to be, when is that? June 26th, Monday, June 26th. Every Monday, we're going to be gathered together on Zoom. The details will be in your inbox for that. We're going to let everyone, even the people who don't subscribe to the video podcast, for the very first one. And that way, you can all get a nice little sample of this Zoom community together. We're going to see you face-to-face. -face. We're going to talk face-to-face. -face. We'll have coffee or tea or maybe you're on the other side of the world and you're going to have a beer. Whatever you want to have with us Monday mornings, the details are coming in your inbox really soon. Or they're actually, by the time this episode comes out, they should already be in your inbox. One more question from the Patreon live stream, Alabama. Hugo said, in the topic of storing for digital clutter, maybe a local digital copy or a thumb drive, CD, DVD in another location could be helpful. What are some other ways that we can include redundancy? So we covered these already, but I will just recap for Hugo. Here's what I do personally. If I absolutely have to have a physical copy, I keep it in a locked file cabinet. Most of the things don't require a physical copy. So I just have a double redundancy. Actually, technically triple on some things. It goes on my computer hard drive, goes on an external hard drive, 
and it goes into the cloud somewhere. I use Dropbox. You can use Google Photos or whatever other service you want to use. Box is a great service as well. Uh, whatever external hard drive you want, they're really inexpensive now. You can get a terabyte or a 10 terabyte, and you can have more data storage than you'll ever need. And then the most important things I keep there locally on my computer. And I think that covers all of it, really. Yeah. And I like what TK said. If you are afraid of losing something in your house, you could have you know, a safety deposit box where you keep it. You can keep it at a, a friend's house. That's what I do with all my clutters. Just keep my stuff at friends' houses. And it makes it easier for me to uh, to live with less. Yeah, I mean, that that truly would have been the only thing I would add. I do those three on my computer, on an external hard drive, in the cloud. And if there's something that's super important, in a safety deposit box. And there you go. House burns down. You got the cloud and the safety deposit box as your two chances. Yeah. And still, I would be just fine without all of it. And understanding that is the ultimate backup. Yeah. Let's read some more about less. This little segment we do where we read something as a jump off point for a discussion. TK, are you a chimp or a bonobo? Mm. I don't know what a bonobo is, so I got to wait on the answer. Ah, let's read this. This is, a, this is from our last book. It's called Love People, Use Things. I'll tell you that I think I've been conditioned to be a chimp, but I aspire to be a bonobo. Mm. Alabama, can you read? This is from page 206. This section's about money, but I think it applies to a conversation TK and I had last night about social media and outrage. Let's read this and then we'll comment on it. Money is not the root of evil. Money seems to be the biggest point of contention in most relationships. We quarrel, quibble, and squabble over household spending. And, illogically, our interactions seem to grow even more contentious as we get more money. I read an observational study a few years ago about the differences between our closest primate ancestors, bonobos and chimpanzees. While neither use currency, they behave very differently when it comes to one of their most precious resources, food. Like human babies, the youngest bonobos and chimps are both eager to share their bananas with others, but their proclivities bifurcate as they grow older. Bonobos remain generous as they continue to share their bananas with the rest of their family and friends well into adulthood. Chimps, on the other hand, hoard their bananas and will even use violence to fight off others who attempt to take one for themselves. What's even more fascinating is that even when bonobos are persuaded by humans to hoard, they continue to be genuous, generous. Researchers gave bonobos the opportunity to keep a pile of bananas for themselves while a fellow bonobo watched from behind a gate. But the altruistic bonobos always chose to open the gate and share their excess with friends. According to researchers, chimps would never do this. They'd rather bicker and argue and even fight if necessary. Sound familiar? We adult humans tend to act more like chimps when it comes to our finances. Money destroys marriages, ends friendships, and breaks up business partnerships. Partnerships. This is why money gets a bad rap. But it doesn't have to be the boogeyman. Unlike our primate ancestors, we can choose how we behave with our resources. Instead of clinging to everything, we can channel our inner bonobo. Money isn't bad or evil, it is merely an amplifier. Money won't necessarily improve your life, but it will amplify your existing behaviors. If you have foolish habits, then more money will make your life considerably worse. 
Think of all the lottery winners who end up destitute. And if you're already a generous person, then more money can help you be more caring and considerate. Regardless of your past behavior, the choice is yours today. Are you going to be a chimpanzee or a bonobo? Choose carefully. Mm. Your relationships depend on it. TK, last night we were talking about social media and how we've turned into chimpanzees on social media when social media was set up for us to be bonobos. Let's, I mean, there's a share button on there. And so what's so fascinating, so if you look at a picture of a bonobo, it looks slightly different from a chimpanzee, but there are two closest ancestors. I think we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees and bonobos, and yet they behave so differently. And we humans, we have, in recent years especially, but one would argue we are constantly, it's like the angel on one shoulder is actually a bonobo, and the devil on the other shoulder is a chimpanzee, and the chimps... They fight, they're very tribal. They fight to the death other chimps in other tribes. In fact, if they run across a chimp from another tribe, they will kill it. There's no question about it. They, mm. they, they feel the compulsion. Even if it's just one chimp by himself, they feel like they, you're on my turf, I must kill you. Mm. Bonobos, on the other hand, they will share. Even when you try to stop them from sharing, they go out of their way to share. And... I think that's how social media started for us. It was, I really want to share this with you. I really want to give something to the world. I want to see what you are sharing, and I want to consume what you're sharing as well. And so it was this free exchange of ideas, of love, of witnessing other human beings through a screen. It was using our technology to improve our lives. However, in recent years especially, 2016 and beyond, we've seen this amplification of hate and outrage, discontent, negativity. We're behaving much more like chimpanzees than we are the bonobos. Yeah, and, and some of that is, is part of the curse of growth, right? So you think about Facebook when it first started, it was just for college students. You actually needed a college email account to even be able to set up Facebook, right? And it was a, a smaller niche market and it lived up to its name, Facebook, right? It was about pictures and it was about people connecting, even the way people's walls looked, everything was so different than how it is now. But then as it began to grow, right, the more people you involve in something, then the more pettiness that you involve in something. And that's not me having a dark look at people. It's just having a realistic look at people. It's like the old saying goes, if there ever were such a thing as a perfect organization, it would cease to be perfect the moment you showed up and became a part of it, right? Uh, because every single one of us is someone else's reason for not being a part of something that they would otherwise participate in. We just have a way of doing that. And so part of it's the curse of growth, but part of it's also a lot of, manipulation and social engineering that goes on. Not to say that there were ever good old days where none of this was happening at all, but now what we have is um, the, the powers that be, if you will, have gotten better at shadow banning. Uh, they've gotten a lot better at making sure that your feed shows you not what you are following, but shows you what they want you to look at because it's all about trying to get as many clicks as possible for the advertisers that are fueling this and making it profitable for them. And so there's just a lot of craziness and it's becoming more and more of a cesspool, transforming us into the chimps who feel the need to 
outdo one another, outperform one another, outown one another, anything to get the click because the click is becoming an end unto itself. It's an interesting thing. I, 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 I often wonder where is it going to go next? Like, is there a point where we just all get tired of it and, and we log off or what's next? I don't know, but it's, it is fascinating. Last night you were telling me that we may be getting to a point where it bifurcates so much that it's become so siloed that may not actually be a bad thing. Sure. Uh, so something that's easy to criticize and is certainly worthy of criticism is the tendency that we're seeing on social media for people to create their own bubbles, right? Where it's like, hey, conservatives just talking to conservatives, liberals just talking to liberals, right? People that are into conspiracy theories just focusing on other people that are into conspiracy theories, people that are religious just focusing on religious communities. Now, there's something positive about it in the sense that sometimes you just want to be part of a community where you can laugh and joke and inquire into the things that you want to participate in, right? You want to be a community of bonobos. There you go. Yeah. I mean, if I'm an atheist, I don't want every single conversation to be interrupted by a religious person that's concerned about me. If I'm a religious person, I want to be able to have at least one conversation about prayer where I don't have to prove to an atheist that it works, right? So regardless of what you feel, what you believe, you want to be able to have some conversations with people that you can just enjoy without justifying. And you're, you're seeing more and more of that. And that certainly has its negative tendencies, but it's making me wonder if part of this is just a reaction to not just our fear of being challenged, but to the toxicity of just being overwhelmed by so many things that are just, that our brains are not hardwired to process. I mean, you think for the majority of human history, the average person didn't even know or interact with or have in their social network more than 100 people. Mm -hmm. You interacted with the people in your neighborhood and the people that you worked with and the concept of fame didn't even exist like it did today. Yeah. Like you didn't know about other people in other countries, maybe a famous emperor that everyone was afraid of that you never even seen. But now we're so overexposed. People are looking for niche, smaller communities. And it makes me wonder if the future of the internet is less about being on these big networks where everyone's chasing a million likes and it's people, you know, quarantining themselves into these niche communities where they're among like minds. That has some negative implications, but it speaks to a real human need that mirrors something that happens in physical space. Mm -hmm. how, how do people choose their neighborhood? How do people choose their, their churches, their gym, their community? People organize themselves in, in, in a certain way. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing what happens, how that maps over on social media. The, the biggest difference is none of those community spaces that you just talked about were reliant upon advertisements yeah. in order for the community to gather. Yeah. You know, whether if you had a church or you had a uh, Alcoholics Anonymous group or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, it wasn't like you showed up there and, you know, this crucifix is brought to you by McDonald's. Ooh. It'd be like, what am I doing, right? Or, you know, this AA meeting is sponsored by Jack Daniels. Oh, gosh. Uh, I, right. It sounds absurd, right? But that's essentially what we're doing. We What we're doing is we're taking our addictions, yeah. amplifying them with our other addiction, which is mm. consumerism. And then we're saying, well, it's just the way that we have to do things. This ad-supported model is the only way to do it because we're not willing to pay money for these things that for many years we would have actually paid money 
to go to a community group, to gather with open-minded or like-minded people who want to gather around a particular subject or topic. And so where are we now? We're being force-fed by the algorithm because they know that more engagement means that what? I am going to see more advertisements the more I'm engaged with the app. Whereas the Minimalist Podcast is different. You pay us, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you pay us once a month and you can listen to one episode. You can listen to all the episodes. You go back to the archives and listen to four, five, 600 episodes, however many episodes are in the archives because we have a bunch of private episodes that are separate as well. So regardless, you, you get, and there's no need, I need you to click more on the private podcast. No, I want you to listen to whatever is enough for you. We're not incentivized by Tide coming in here or a mattress company coming here and saying, well, Josh, you just get the more, we know you have these thousands of subscribers, but if you just got them to listen 10% more, we'll give you 10% more money. It doesn't work that way. We're not beholden to advertisers, so we don't need to manipulate the algorithm to aggregate your eyeballs and your ears onto our podcast even more. Yeah. You know, something else that's related is uh, Frederick Bastiat coined what's called the broken window fallacy. Yes. And the example is, suppose you take a baseball and you throw it at a window and the window breaks. Well, the person who owns that window is now going to have to pay money to have it fixed. And that's going to create a job for the person who's in the business of repairing windows. So technically, you just created a job opportunity by breaking someone's window. Looks good for the economy, right? So if that's true, then we should all just go outside and start breaking windows so we can stimulate the economy. Why is that fallacious? Well, it's because Bastiat makes the distinction between the seen and the unseen. He says what's seen is an opportunity that's created for the person who repairs windows. What's not seen is what would have been done with those resources had the owner of the window not been forced to pay for that. They might have bought a dress. They might have put it into their business. They would have done something else that would have stimulated the economy in a different direction. A lot of times when we engage in not only economic fallacies, but self-defeating behaviors, it's because of the prioritization of that which is seen over that which is unseen. It's because we're focused on the immediate obvious benefits at the neglect of the principles and intangible values that we, that we can't see. And when we ignore those things, we produce what economists call negative externalities. And what I see in the chimps is a model of success that focuses on what is seen, the short-term gain, the immediate benefit. And what I see in the others, the bonobos, is an understanding of something that is less obvious, but very important, that which is unseen. And the way we create a culture, the way we encourage a world where we flourish and we, we, we cooperate and we support one another is we help people see what they can't see, that there are principles that lead to human flourishing. When we live with mutual respect for one another's freedom, for diversity and so on, it actually helps us win, that there truly is a sense that when I help you win, I win, but that's not obvious. What is obvious though, is if I knock you up the head and take your wallet, I get an immediate benefit. That short-term gain though, produces so many negative externalities that hurts both of us in the long run and helping people understand the kinds of incentives and principles that lead to success is so important, but it's difficult to see like most of the good, valuable, long-lasting things in life are. Yeah. 
Speaking of chimpanzees, our added value this week, there's a brand new series on Netflix. It's called Chimp Empire. I've been watching with my wife and my daughter. It's rare to find something that adults and kids enjoy at the same level, right? Because I could sit down and watch, you know, uh, uh, one of Ella's cartoons or shows or whatever, and I can get joy from her joy, the sort of compersion of, of, and then likewise, we were just watching, uh, there's this new Hillsong documentary, the kind of four-part Hillsong documentary. It's about the downfall. I think it's called The Secrets of Hillsong, and it's Carl Lentz's first interview, and Bex and I are watching that, and then Ella comes in, and she's like, kind of curious about it, but she doesn't appreciate it and enjoy it at the same level that we do. But this new show is called Chimp Empire, and it's about, it's stunning. I mean, visually unbelievable. I have no idea how they film this thing. I mean, it's like you are right there with these two different tribes of chimps. There's a big one in in Ngogo, and then there's Western Ngogo, and there was at one point where they were all together and they fractioned off. So there's two different tribes. And like I said, they will kill someone who is from another tribe because they're so protective of their territory. And even within their own tribe, there's politics going on around food and abundance. And who am I sharing food with? The bonobos, like there's no bonobos in this series, but bonobos, they don't care. They'll share with any other bonobo, right? Especially if they're in the same tribe together. We are going to share because if you win, I win and vice versa, right? With chimps, even with the their loved ones, they're really guarded with their resources, the food that they're eating. If they're eating some fruit or they're eating a monkey, they're super guarded with their resources. Even if their kid comes up to them, they're a little weary to give their food to their kid or to their significant other, for lack of a better term, the mother of their child. They're, they're hesitant to share at all and they become violent. And it's interesting because I see a lot of humanity in these chimpanzees, but thankfully I know about bonobos as well. I'd love to see the same series about bonobos. And what's so fascinating about this series is the way they filmed, you could tell they just got thousands of hours of footage for Chimp Empire. And Mahershala Ali is narrating it. And I absolutely love his voice. But they create this whole narrative. It's like the power of storytelling. Like I'd be compelled if you just showed me the footage of these chimpanzees. Sure. But when you have Mahershala Ali with the writers of this thing, they've created a whole narrative. Each chimpanzee has a name and has a relationship and it gives their age and who they are and what their demeanor and personality is and why this one was warring Mm. with this other tribe. And we're just two and a half episodes in and I found it to be so compelling because I see a lot of the worst, the weakest sides of me in the chimpanzees. I see the best version of me in bonobos. Yeah. Oh man. I, I, I love how you put that. Like I, I see me in both of those things. One of the most powerful things about stories is stories allow us to see ourselves through other people. Right. And they allow us to sort of make sense of our own lives. But kind of the challenging aspect of how we read stories is we often see ourselves as the good guy or as the protagonist. And it's like one of the most powerful ways to read a story is to say, how am I every person in this story? Yeah. The villain never thinks he's the villain, That's by right. the way. Yeah. Mm. And 
And the heretic never thinks of himself as a heretic. Ah, oh, so true. You can check it out on Netflix. It's called Chimp Empire. That is our maximal episode for today. Uh, thank you once again for being a Patreon subscriber. You make this podcast possible. Ryan Nicodemus will be back next week for episode 400. So on behalf of him and TK Coleman and Alabama and Jordan No More and Professor Sean and Danny Unknown and post-production Peter and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We love y'all. See you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it